0: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I do make friends. i trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. If you come out here to talk about stocks every night, then you better believe you're going to make some mistakes in a highly visible, highly public way. And by you, of course, I mean me. That's why every year I like to hold a Day of Atonement to help you learn from my worst mistakes. So tonight I'm going to remonstrate to demonstrate how we can all improve by examining a number of calls we've made on Mad Money and the Travel Trust, explaining why they occurred, what went wrong, and what you can do to learn from me do it better. Before I get into specifics, though, let me give you a sense of what I see as the biggest kinds of errors I seem to have made, and how I will vow once again to try not to make them, even as different ones then pop up to haunt me. Most of the things I do wrong these days after 40-plus years in the business aren't rookie mistakes. It's very rare now that I suggest a quick trade that then goes awry, because anyone who has watched the show morph over the years knows that I have moved away speedily against trading and spend most of my time trying to cajole you into investing. I've come to dislike the suggestion of day trading or even quick trading or even options, because I think it's going to hurt your chance of making money. It's just wrong to trade unless you're doing a full-time job. And even then, I wouldn't recommend it. My mistakes rarely have to do with not doing enough homework. These days, I'm doing, I think, more and better homework than I did back in my hedge fund, with a terrific staff of savvy people who've now been with me for some time and are really fabulous. Great team at the CMC Investing Club, too, if, I'm, if anything. I am crushing it and being crushed by my homework, as there are hundreds more public companies now than when I started. No, if anything, it's the opposite of rookie mistakes that I'm making. Why don't we call them veterans' mistakes? My errors are rooted in overconfidence and arrogance of judgment and in too much belief in what's worked so well before that it has to work again. They're blunders I make because I sometimes feel like I've seen the movie before and I know how it ends. When the great challenge of investing in the stock market means that in reality, it's much more like a close sporting event where you don't know the outcome of what it'll be. And just when you're sure you do, that's when you get the big upset. The worst errors I've made, though, have to do with trust, either by being too trusting or not trusting enough. I've trusted too many executives with good track records who told me not to worry about things that ultimately needed to be worried about. These are usually people with a lot of credibility, but one of the perils of success is that eventually you can start believing your own BS. At the same time, there are other executives I didn't trust who perhaps upon a closer review, actually deserved a little more credit. Most of all, though, I do this night of self-criticism, criticism, uh, and I do it all the time. I, I, I do it to remind me and remind you that while I come out here daily to try to get it right, I'm only human, and I fall prey to all the misjudgments that anyone else might fall prey to. But we've got to learn from them, nonetheless. So why don't we? Let me start with a story that really that, that gets me down and let you down. It's a story where I had too much faith in management's power to triumph over an objectively difficult situation. I'm talking about the tale of Johnson and Johnson. Long one of my favorite companies, which we used to own for the Travel Trust, until we finally threw in the towel and gave up the position, promptly though, in the summer of 2023. Normally, when we sell a stock for the trust, it's because something's changed at the company or in the industry, or the stock hits our price target. And we don't want to be greedy. We set price targets if you subscribe to members of the club. See, we care about uh, chasing profits. But as we teach members of the club, which chronicles the moves of the trust and details any trades before the trust makes them, we care far more about containing losses, because when you control your losses, well, guess what? The gains take care of themselves. But we didn't sell J&J because of the fundamentals. I still believe J&J has one of the best pharma pipelines in the industry, along with the terrific medical device portfolio. No, we gave up on J&J at a small gain, mind you, because we were tired of being hostage to legal decisions that had little to do with the greatness of this storied company. Specifically, J&J was neck-deep in lawsuits involving its baby powder and whether its one-time key ingredient, talc, had traces of asbestos in it, traces that might have caused people to get cancer. Twenty years ago, I would have known instantly that asbestos lawsuits equal sell. But it has been so long since we had one of these that I forgot how ugly they could get for shareholders. I forgot that asbestos is a magnet for plaintiff's lawyers. I believe that J&J's lawyers had control of the situation because they seemed persuasive and had good resumes. But you could have said the same thing about all the defense lawyers who lost big asbestos cases in the 1980s. When these talc lawsuits first exploded, I, I... I said, oh, I, gotta, I, I know how to deal with this. I, I brought on the CEO, Alex Gorsky on the show. And after a considerable amount of research, I came to the conclusion that J&J acted in good faith. At least, at the very least, they didn't know about the asbestos. In fact, I was convinced there might not have been any asbestos in it to begin with. The whole thing seemed like an accident at worst. That was a misjudgment. Since then, there have been a seemingly endless number of cases filed against J&J. And while it's won many of them, it's also lost some big ones, including a $2 billion judgment that made me let's say, believe I simply wasn't taking the plaintiff's side seriously enough? Again, 20 years ago, I never would have bet on a company engaged in asbestos-related litigation because that's a great way to light your money on fire. I forgot how tough these lawsuits were. I forgot the great companies that went under because of asbestos. Even as many of it I didn't think deserved it, but deserves, of course, got nothing to do with it. Then j and came up with what I thought was an excellent strategy to pay $8.9 billion to the plaintiffs as part of a global settlement that would have put this whole thing behind them and, more important, put immediate money into the hands of the claimants. Good for everyone, and many plaintiff's lawyers agreed. I started feeling hopeful. Another mistake. The Third Circuit Court in Philadelphia, I found out later, absolutely hates these kinds of agreements, it's these bad settlements. That's what they think. Uh, how could I not see that coming? Because j lawyers were so optimistic, and I was a fool, it. In the meantime, JJ reported a terrific quarter to spun off its consumer products division as Kenview and a hugely successful IPO. But really, when the charitable trust owned j we thought we were betting on the fundamentals of the company. But you know what? We were actually betting on the thing that controlled the stock, and that was the litigation. And you never want to play that game. It is a game. In retrospect, I was far too sanguine about j and ability to get a settlement that would protect their shareholders from unlimited losses through a novel use of the bankruptcy code. Eventually, the judge overseeing the faux bankruptcy sided with the plaintiffs against J&J. So the company once again found itself at the mercy of the lawyers bringing suits for the extremely sympathetic clients. The court ruled that J&J was not in true financial distress, so it didn't have a right to the bankruptcy course. That's when I knew these cases would mount up, leading to another procession of hard-to-predict verdicts. Hence why I finally gave up on J&J for the travel trust. See, it didn't matter that I thought they were, weren't particularly culpable. It didn't matter that the underlying fundamentals were terrific. What matters is that through this litigation, they were potentially on the hook for billions of billions of dollars, almost incalculable in losses. In the end, you simply don't want to have a position that's precarious because of lawsuits, not because of the fundamentals. Hey, this business is hard enough without playing litigation roulette via a jackpot justice system that we have in this country. I don't want to wake up one day and discover that some runaway jury decides J&J's earnings belong not to the stockholders, but to the sick claimants, I've seen this happen several times in situations that were truly pernicious, where the companies absolutely had a coming. I don't think j and is one of them. They had a tremendous balance sheet, too. But so what? It doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the juries think. And you don't bet on friendly juries when you're looking at an asbestos suit in a big, rich company. In fact, the terrific balance sheet actually worked against j and What well-endowed company should be uh, allowed to file for bankruptcy? So I didn't think the ultimate upside was worth hoping for. Hope should never be part of the equation, of course. Given the nature of our legal system, there's really no telling how bad this one could be, which is why we had the travel trust done, this great American company. Bottom line, I like betting on businesses, not lawsuits and lawyers who game them. So if you ever find yourself betting on a brutal set of lawsuits, don't try to fight it just because you love the company, like I did with J&J for so long. Believe me, there are better and easier ways to try to make some money. Let's go to Eric in Florida. Eric.
1: My call. Oh, of course, Eric. What's up? So my question, so you advise investors or home gamers take their first ten thousand dollars and stick that in a low cost index fund. Yes. My so question do. for you is as as us home gamers build wealth over time, the weighting of that initial ten thousand dollars from an overall portfolio perspective, if you're doing it right, you know, becomes less significant what do you recommend home gainers home gamers maintain as a as a weighting in terms of that position and would you also maybe advise adding
0: cues or iwm What a great question. I've got to tell you, yes, indeed. I actually think more about the smaller investor than I think about the larger one. But if you save over time, what you want to do is probably ultimately get it so that about 50 percent of your portfolio at minimum is the index fund. And then you can have some other stocks and maybe mix in some bonds as you get older. But I do believe that the index fund is the bedrock. And thank you for recognizing that's my feeling. Let's go to Sean in Massachusetts. Sean.
1: Hey, Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for taking my call to you and your team, and thanks to the ladies that got me checked in. I hear you talk a lot about S&P 500 or something similar, too. My question to you is, should I change my current investment in my 401k plan through my employer to the Vanguard Index 500 at 100%, which my company offers, or should I split it up with the current investment that I currently have in the plan?
0: Um, look, I, I am very conservative, and to me, you want to be diversified, and that means index fund best. But it sounds like you're doing it very right. I am, again, incredibly conservative when it comes to retirement money. If you ever find yourself betting on a brutal set of lawsuits, please do not try to fight it just because you love the company like I did with J&J so long. You must believe me when I say there are better ways to try to make money. Or well, may have money tonight from Silicon Valley Bank to Boeing. I'm sharing the pain I've experienced in the years that I've been around and I've got to tell you something. The house of pain. The best strategy on how to handle it is what you're going to learn tonight. Don't fret. You and I will get through this together.
1: So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
0: just like real life failure is a brilliant teacher so what can we learn from the failures over the last year wait what do i need to atone for let me talk about one of my most eye-catching fumbles in 2023 in february we ran a segment on the 10 best performers in the sp500 for february looking for stocks that could keep winning through the rest of the year one of these stocks was a company called silicon valley bank which went on to collapse a little more than a month later But when I talked about it in February, it was up 40% for the year. Everything looked fine, to the point where I recommended the darn thing. That was a huge and ridiculous mistake. Silicon Valley Bank experienced an actual bank run, kicking off the whole mini-banking crisis for the year. Downright embarrassing, and I got thrashed all over the place when I make mistakes. You know what? I actually don't care, as I am tougher on myself than any one of these glasshouse critics could ever be. But I also think it's given us a teachable moment, because nearly everybody got Silicon Valley Bank wrong. Almost no one saw it come. Well, that's no excuse. If you look back to two days before SVB collapse, of the 23 analysts who covered the stock, 22 of them had either buy or hold on it, with an average price target of 292. Only one analyst was negative, Morgan Stanley's Manon Gasalia. Congratulations. But even he had a $90 price target on this thing. Even the most negative of them thought it was a $90 stock, not a stock that was quickly headed to zero. Oh, and to be sure, it's no excuse that everyone got it wrong. You don't watch a show about everyone. You watch the show because of me, and I let you down. In short, the Silicon Valley Bank Run was one of those events that blindsided everybody. So how the heck did we all get it wrong? Okay, let me tell you a little story. Once upon a time, Silicon Valley Bank really did have a fantastic business going. This company got its start as a normal regional bank in Silicon Valley. Thanks to its footprint in the land of innovation, SVB became the bank of choice for a huge chunk of our nation's startups, including their founders and top executives. In the end, they were doing anything and everything for these startups and their top guys, banking, wealth management, even lending them money using their non-publicly traded stocks as collateral. There's a hopeful game. In more recent years, they made some moves, expanding into research and investment banking, and uh, all for the same type of customers. The stuff is terrific. Given Silicon Valley Bank's relationships with tech startups, emerging biotech firms, and their principals, you had a lot of reasons to believe their strategy would keep paying off and few reasons to bet against it. After all, for many years, it was incredibly successful. SVB's average deposits grew from $20 billion in 2013 to 48 billion in 2018 and then 186 billion in 2022. Their earnings per share soared too, and their stock caught fire along with the IPO market, skyrocketing from 200 in 2017 to an all time high of 763 right before the Fed declared war on inflation in November of 2021. Of course, in 2022, SVP got poleaxed, stock plummeting back to below 200 by its lows in the early December. See, the Fed's aggressive rate hikes made their clients a lot less valuable. Higher rates made it much harder for startups to get funding, and the IPO market shut down, so the more mature ones couldn't come public in order to raise more cash. You don't want to be the banker to startups in a world where the IPO market's frozen. But like the analysts who covered this thing, I assume that was baked into SVB's stock price after it plunged from 763 to under 200 Baked in. Still, why was I so optimistic that SVB could go higher when I talked about a little over a month before it went under? That's because the mini-banking crisis came from out of nowhere, and this particular bank fell apart practically overnight, right after a prominent group of great analysts from Moffat Nathans had sold themselves to these guys. I counted on nothing to get it right. They're they're such smart people. I thought they would have checked this out better. I don't know. It seemed reasonable, but it was wrong. Uh, But remember, I need to get it right for you, not Moffat Nathans. Remember how 2023 started? In January, we got a series of cooler inflation readings and weaker macro numbers, which led us, many of us to believe that the Fed was winning its world inflation and could soon stop raising interest rates. In fact, the consensus view at the time figured the Fed might even begin cutting rates at the end of the year, although I never bought into that, thank heavens. If that more benign scenario had unfolded, the IPO market would have opened up again in the first half, and SGB would have been just fine. After all, they've been in the business for 40 years. I assume they know what the heck they were doing. Of course, all these assumptions turn out to be flat-out wrong. First, not long after our ill-fated commentary on SVB, the economic situation turned on its head. We got stronger numbers, and inflation started heating up again with a much higher-than-expected consumer price index number on February 14th, Valentine's Day. We quickly realized that the Fed's war against inflation was far from over, something Fed Chief Jay Powell confirmed shortly before the bank run when he made some very hawkish remarks on Capitol Hill. It's no coincidence that Silicon Valley Bank imploded two days later. So you got to understand, SVP had not one, but it had two problems, and neither one of them were readily apparent until they smacked us in the face. First, the deposit base was way too concentrated among venture capital firms and their portfolio companies. Second, they took this money and made some very aggressive investments in longer-term government bonds to pick up a little extra interest. Investments that were underwater because the Fed's rate hikes crushed bond prices. Normally, it's fine if your bonds are underwater; you just wait until maturity, you get your principal back. Big deal. But when Silicon Valley Bank's venture capital depositors seem to demand their money overnight, this company is forced to sell its bond portfolio, and it sold at huge losses. In the banking business, you need both a steady source of capital from your deposit base and a stable bond portfolio. Silicon Valley Bank had neither a real bad mismatch that somehow had been blessed by the regulators. So all of a sudden, SVB needed capital badly, but they couldn't raise it, even as the deposit outflows were coming fast and furious, even being tweeted on about, hey, it's time to get out. In response, the regulators seized the bank, closed it, wiping out the common stock better than never, I guess. So that's what happened here. When we talked about SVB positively in early February, we were giving our best opinion on the story with the information we had at the time, information blessed by the regulators. Shortly after, though, the macroeconomic situation changed, I wish I'd circle back to this one and told you to forget about it at that point. But, man, none of the sell-side analysts got this one right either because SVB really wasn't that forthcoming about the level of risk they were taking. We only learned how reckless the firm was with its investment portfolio right before the bank went under. They were running their money in a way that made them insanely vulnerable to losses in the event of a quick exodus of deposits. I also didn't count on those who departed yelling fire in a crowded theater, of course, on Twitter. They practically willed a bank run into existence. Who could have thought anyone would do that? Most importantly, we were too cursory and chose to rely on public documents that had been vetted by regulators. We should have gone deeper than that because we came to learn that while the regulators were very strict with systematically important financial firms, they were apparently a lot more lenient with banks dubbed non-systematically important like SVB. Bottom line here, so many of us got Silicon Valley Bank wrong because we relied on the regulators, who were also wrong. The bank examiners were totally asleep at the wheel before the mini-financial crisis, although they've gotten much more aggressive once the horse had already left the barn. Still, it's no excuse. We need to be better than the regulators are, and in the case of SVB, we weren't. I wish I'd been more pressured with this one, but when I get it wrong, I always atone for it. Money's back at the right. the subject of mistakes I've made and the desire for remonstration to learn from them, we need to talk about some trust issues. Sometimes I'm way too tough on management, and sometimes I give them too many free passes. Right now, I want to highlight a situation where I made a latter mistake, leaving too much in a great CEO's ability to turn around a genuinely broken company. Sometimes a company's in such bad shape that there's almost no coming back from it, even if they bring in a tremendously talented management team. Maybe a brilliant CEO can ultimately turn things around, but turning an awful business around is a process that can take years and years. It's not something you want to bet on right out of the gate. Yet that's exactly what I did with Foot Locker not long after they brought in Mary Dillon, as CEO, in late 2022. Dillon is a retail legend. She's the one who transformed Ultra Beauty into a nationwide cosmetic powerhouse. She took over in 2013. By the time she retired in 2021, the stock had give you a magnificent 245% return. In short, she is a legend. So when Foot Locker hired her as the CEO in 2022, I figured she'd be able to breathe new life into the struggling mall-based footwear chain. We brought her on the show in in March of 2023, and while she stressed that the term would take a long time, I thought she told a really compelling story. Heck, she even did a lot of insider buying, putting some money where her mouth is. She had a plan to close down the worst stores, and I was confident she could work her ultimatic at Foot Locker. Although, again, I knew we'd have to be patient, and that's why we went as far as buying this one for the Travel Trust in small position. But we bought it. In retrospect, that was a colossal error, a disastrous mix of ignorance and arrogance on my part. I knew turning around Foot Locker would be a Herculean task, but I had so much confidence in Dylan's leadership that I figured everything would be fine no matter how hard the story got. While I put a lot of emphasis on the need for great management and how terrific CEOs can accomplish incredible things here, some things are impossible for even the best executives in the world. There are real-world constraints on what they can accomplish, so the great man or woman theory of investing only gets you so far. And look, it's not Mary Dillon's fault that I got this one wrong. She didn't mislead us. And when we bought the stock, she hadn't even been there long enough to accomplish real comeback. Buying Foot Locker for the Chapel Trust was my screw-up. And while I'd love to pass the blame around to my colleagues or the the people who who run Foot Locker, the buck stops here. I said turning around Foot Locker would be a Herculean task, but even Hercules never needed to turn around a flailing mall-based retailer, not his skill set. No matter how great the CEO, they can't fight the laws of nature, and that includes the merciless laws of the retail industry. Fast forward to late August of 2023, Foot Locker stock had already been obliterated when it reported an ugly quarter in May, falling from 41 to 30 in a single session. But the August quarter made that look like child's play. Companies have a little slack. I told members of the investing club that it would be a horrible quarter ahead of time. However, that turned out to be a severe understatement. I had absolutely no idea how bad this thing could get. My first loss would have been my best loss. See, that August uh, Foot Locker reported one of the worst quarters I've ever seen. Not only did their sales sink 10% year over year, coming in we could expect it, but their earnings plummeted 96% from the previous year. And that was actually an inline number because the analysts understood Foot Locker's business was awful. The thing that really hurt is that management also announced a pause in its dividend payments. Just a horrifying sign that the company didn't see anything getting better anytime soon. A lot of people were in this one for the payout. Footlocker yielded more than 6% going into the quarter. And they immediately lost the best reason to stick with the stock. A dividend boost is generally a sign of confidence. A dividend cut suggests lack of confidence, but a wholesale pause in the dividend, that suggests a different kind of confidence. Confidence that business will be awful for the foreseeable future. Imagine playing the weak consumer, changing vendor mix as they tried to diversify away from Nike and a tough macroeconomic environment, one that was hurting their core lower income customers particularly hard. Early in the year, Mary Dillon had outlined her turnaround plan coming off of a pretty strong holiday season. But by the summer of 2023, the company had seen a weak start to after school season and a much more cautious consumer. As a result, Foot Locker had aggressively discounted its merchandise to unload excess inventory, you know how bad that is, and simply compete for market share. It got to the point where Foot Locker was burning through cash so rapidly, it looked like they might even have to tap the credit line just to stay in business. In response, the stock justifiably lost nearly 30% of its value in a single day, and for good reason. It was much worse than we had assumed, and any potential turnaround would take a lot longer than we were prepared to wait, if it could ever happen. Of course, by the time we figured that out, the stock had come down so low that it didn't seem to be worth selling at all. But the worst part of this Foot Locker saga is that I really should have seen it coming. I was blinded by Mary Dillon's spectacular track record. And again, it's not her fault that the stock got killed in the year after she took over. This was a very troubled company. It took some time just to assess the full extent of the problem. I still believe she's a great CEO. However, I always tell you that you never want to own the best house in a bad neighborhood. One of our guiding rules for the CBC Investing Club and Foot Locker wasn't even the best house in a bad neighborhood. It was a bad house in a horrible neighborhood that is mall based shopping. It just happened to bring in a good contractor to fix things up. But there's only so much a contractor can do when you're running a mall based store based with, you know, with lots of excess inventory. It's insanely hard to orchestrate straight to come back. This is a lesson I should have learned back when I recommended American Eagle Outfitters, another disaster of a stock that obliterated the Travel Trust after it peaked in December 2021. Boy, did I get that one. Wrong. Shame on me that I thought a mall-based stock like Footlocker could be anything more than a product of its environment. I simply never should have stuck my neck out on this one, no matter how much I believe in Mary Dillon's leadership, because sometimes leadership is not enough. I had too much faith in a person and was too blind to what was happening to the very good management team in American Eagle, one of my worst picks since I started this open handed stock picking experiment 20 years ago. The bottom line management matters, sure, but when you bring in a new pilot on a crashing airplane, they can't defy gravity. Footlocker was a disaster way to happen. That kind of comeback can take an extremely long time. We never should have bought this one so early. Pure hubris on my part. Hubris is an awful trait when it comes to investing, and I allowed it to cloud my judgment like a rookie would. Shame on me. Let's go to Mike in Illinois. Mike.
1: Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call.
0: No, I'm uh, getting your call, I'm Mike. Lo- What's up?
1: I'm looking to open a 529 plan for my 2-year-old granddaughter. Excellent. And I wonder what your opinion is, where I should invest it where, for the appreciation for the next 15, 20 years.
0: Okay, so let's just start by building up a nice position in index fund. You know what? I think what you probably want to do, I might even put maybe 35% in index fund before you even start thinking of some individual stocks. Uh, I just think it's very, very conservative time, and that's what you want to do. Index funds is the way to go for 529 plans. Vinny in
1: Connecticut. Vinny. Thank you, Mr. Kramer, for taking my phone call and I am a club member. Thank I would you. like to know if I buy an individual stock and it goes down, what percentage do I think about selling it? Okay, well look, I mean if
0: we change our thesis about it, then you should sell it. Or if I say, look, I don't like this one, I'm trying to hold it for the long term, but it's really rough, I don't think you should be in it, then I think you should sell it. Those are the those are the guidelines, and you know there's been a couple stocks I've said that for, and that's what I stand by. Irwin in New York, Irwin.
1: Hey Jim, how are you? Hi, okay. in uh, I am okay. Brooklyn. I'm I got a question for you. I know you have a lot of a wide range of visitors, of listeners and watchers, and all different degrees of investment. Some are small investors, some are medium investors. I have. Uh, I know you hate to have people having more than five or six stocks in their portfolio. No, here.
0: that's fine. That's fine. As long I as you're excited of, about it, do
1: you want you know, to do the homework? I don't know how? I have 10 stocks at various prices. I don't know how to balance the portfolio. Okay. Let's say, for instance, I have 10 stocks and I have uh, $10,000. Now, it's very easy to put $1,000 into each of these 10 stocks. But that doesn't seem like it's an equitable way to balance the portfolio. Well, how, What is the proper way? Okay, well, you know, you know,
0: I like to rank my stocks. Not all stocks can be ones. Uh, I have to pick ones, two, threes. Threes, if they go up, you'll sell. Ones, you got to keep. Twos are in flux. And then I also would think, you know what? Let's pick the stocks against each other. Maybe just pick the best five. I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. Thank you for the call and for your confidence. Ubers is an awful trait when it comes to investing, as I've learned from experience. You should never allow it to cloud your judgment, as I did mine. It's a rookie mistake that even seasoned professionals like me often make. Much more may have been in the head, I'm revisiting a couple more bad calls I made for the Travel Trust, including some stocks in terrific companies like Disney and Boeing. I learned from my mistakes. Plus, my colleague Jeff Mark, and I are about to take your questions about investing, retirement, and more. So stay with Kramer. All night, I've been highlighting my biggest mistakes. That's not to punish myself, but because I believe the only way you can become a better investor is by acknowledging your screw-ups and then learning from them. Oh, I guess there's a little bit of masochism in there, too. I can't resist. We isolate what we did wrong. We atone. We adjust, and we are all the better for it. That's the mad money way, has been since we started. Let me tell you, as much experience as I have, as long as I've been doing this, which is basically forever, you're never too old to make the classic mistake of falling in love with a stock, which is too bad because it's one of the quickest ways for you to wreck your portfolio. So let me give you a cautionary tale, a love story, My Bad Romance with Disney. Not to totally mix diva references, but the sta- stock sage, Demi Lovato, and her seminal treatise, give your heart a break, warns us at the end, the day I first met you, you told me never fall in love. And yet, did I listen to Demi when I came to Disney? No. Of course I didn't. No, I fell in love with Disney anyway, and when you fall in love with your judgment goes, you, boom, your, your judgment just goes right out the window. What happened? I made a judgment that Disney's franchise was worth any amount of money. Between the theme parks and the movie properties and the streaming platform, ASPN, everything that got on TV, I didn't consider that a weakened balance sheet, rising programming costs, and bungling management could overwhelm this amazing company's franchise. We owned it for the Chapel Trust, and we stuck with Disney through thick and thin, even as the stock plummeted from uh, from early 2021 through the summer of 2023, from peak to 12, the darn thing lost more than half of its value. Shameful. Even as the situation deteriorated and they tragically were obvious to me, actually they were, I refuse to let this one go. No pride. It's one of my favorite stocks to the point where I even have one physical share of Disney hanging in my office. I always say, listen, young people, a kid gets born. You know, you give them Disney, they'll like, get involved with the market. All nonsense when it comes to the losses we had here. Unfortunately, this company did a few very foolish things. First, they spent $71.3 billion buying 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets in 2019. That turned out to be, but not at the time, a massive overpay that I thought hurt their once pristine balance sheet. Second, they promoted a theme park guy, Bob Chapek, as CEO from 2022. I'm sorry, 2020 through November 2022. This man was a bungler. Third, they spent a fortune building out their streaming platform, Disney Plus, right before Wall Street stopped judging streaming based on subscriber growth and instead started care about profitability. In a way, Chapek didn't get a bad hand. He's not the one who made the Fox deal happen, and the moment he took over, the pandemic hit. But over time, I figured he'd resurrect Disney's flagging divisions, improve the balance sheet, restore its dividend with the assistance of CFO Christine McCarthy. Instead, he mostly ignored McCarthy and seemed to lose control of Disney's various divisions. With little accountability, Anytime something went wrong. As the situation deteriorated, Chapek increasingly became... How about unhinged from reality? Or at least that's how it sounded on the conference calls. He assured me over and over again that things were getting better and he could turn the, the ship around. And like a sucker, I believed him. Finally, in November 2022, Disney reported a truly abysmal quarter, which Chapek actually tried to spin as a huge victory. At that point, I started calling for the, his resignation. And it didn't take long for the board of directors to oust Chapek and bring back his predecessor, Bob Iger, constant Hollywood guy, far better track record. In Iger's first few months back on the job, the stock rebounded like crazy. That was in part because suggestions from activist Nelson Peltz were accepted. But then spent the next nine months steadily trending lower because the problems were too difficult to transcend overnight. So here's the thing. I still believe Disney's got a great set of franchises. The balance sheet's been fixed because the company generates a ton of cash. I still believe Bob Iger can turn things around, especially now that he's working with some very smart activist investors to get costs under control. I can already see Iger making even more progress with the balance sheet, so the acquisition of Hulu he doesn't own can be bought without reaching. And that's a big reason why we bought more of this one for the travel trust on weakness. But it was a mistake for me to believe in Disney when it was trading in the 180s. It was a mistake to keep giving Bob Chapek the benefit of the doubt when he'd done next to nothing to earn it. Great companies don't rest on their laurels. In the end, even the best franchises can't overcome cash flow shortages or the fickle nature of the consumer. Disney's ill-advised purchase of Fox should have made me cut and run. Broken balance sheet made it a broken stock for multiple years, and that was uh, far more important than the franchise itself. Even when they brought in better management, it took some time before this business started turning around, and the stock kept going lower for the better part of the year. So here's the bottom line. No matter how fantastic a company might be, do not fall in love with its, its stock unless you've given serious consideration to its balance sheet. Because when the balance sheet's bad, It's like marrying someone with a horrible credit. You're gonna be paying for that mistake for ages. Do I think Disney will come back? Yes! But that's not the question. Why did I buy it so bad? Because I was in love with a piece of paper. Something that should never happen. Mad Money's back after the break. worse than making a call, getting the substance dead right, but then just crushingly horrible execution on the name. And you know why? Because you got frustrated or impatient and you couldn't wait for your thesis to play out. That's why I want you to consider the classic unforced error that the trust made with the stock of Boeing. Now, this was a core holding for the Travel Trust coming out of the pandemic. As we told members of the CMC Investing Club repeatedly, we thought 2022 would be the year of Boeing. After years of colossal mismanagement, we figured they'd get their grounded aircraft back in the sky, and more important, see a wave of new orders. Honestly, this was an ironclad thesis for one very special, simple reason. No matter how badly Boeing screwed things up, and at the the end of the day, there are only two major manufacturers of commercial aircraft on Earth, the other being Airbus. And when there's a boom in demand for planes, Airbus can't possibly fill all the orders. Either the airlines wait forever, or they also buy from Boeing. As long as you got into the stock at the right price, you were bound to be a winner as the world went back to normal and we saw an insane travel boom. The airlines would desperately need to add capacity. Boeing's order book would swell, and eventually the earnings would go through the roof. And hey, when you take a long view, that's more or less how it played out. If you were smart about your entry point and bought Boeing in the spring of 2022, you would have made a bundle over the next 12 months precisely because of the post-COVID travel boom that we were predicting. Problem is... That's not when we bought Boeing for the trust. We got in much earlier, and this comeback story ended up taking longer than we expected to play out, a lot longer. In the meantime, Boeing continued to do what it does best, mismanagement so bad it's comical. Except it's hard to laugh because when this company drops the ball, planes can crash and people die. Of course, I knew that Boeing was a clown show. That was baked into my bull thesis, actually. No matter how badly they messed up, I saw a wave of demand coming from the airlines. And given that Boeing and Airbus are the only two players who can actually meet the demand in scale, I was sure a rising tide would lift boats. That was right. Now, when Boeing's stock ran up in 2021 as part of the post-vaccine rally, we trimmed some, and we got a very nice profit there. At that point, all I had to do was sit back and rest. just patiently wait for the travel bull market to kick in, causing a wave of orders from the overburdened airlines. I had to plug my ears and, w- and just ignore all the negative press that Boeing seems to generate almost habitually. Oh, but man, that is hard to do, especially when the company in question keeps giving you reasons to sell. Even as the broader macro situation became more and more favorable to my bull thesis, Boeing kept dropping the ball. Even if the 737 MAX got recertified years after this horrific accidents, it was taking them forever to retrofit these planes and get them back in the sky. By the spring of 2022, when we finally gave up on Boeing for the travel trust, thousands of these jets were still grounded, even though the orders had started coming back. But just what it seemed like they've almost finished fixing the 737, the Federal Aviation Administration made them halt deliveries on the 787 Dreamliner, their largest commercial jet. From the spring of 2021 through the summer of 2022, Boeing couldn't actually sell them to customers. I really thought the company could make a boatload selling just China because desperate, China's desperate. They, they, they've got many, many people haven't even flown a plane in China yet. And they need to show that if they have any fealty at all or any way to be able to demonstrate some sort of friendship with our country, Boeing is the traditional way to, of our trading partners to send us an olive branch. I mean, it's a bizarrely structured company that tries to source its components from as many congressional districts as possible. Remember, Boeing's also a defense contractor, so creating jobs for members of Congress is how they keep the federal orders flowing. But our government's relationship with China never really seemed to thaw. The orders didn't come, yet another huge source of frustration. Of course, if I'd stuck around until June of 2023, the Chinese airline thesis finally paid off, as Boeing started making extremely optimistic noises about the PRC. But I didn't have the fortitude to wait it out. I just couldn't take the house of pain. In January 2022, Boeing reported a hideous quarter. Just a huge sales in Ernie Smith with skyrocketing labor costs, expensive raw materials, nasty cost overruns on their projects, and the company taking big charges to boot. In April, they reported another top and bottom line miss with a $1.5 billion charge from the delay of the 777X. They even messed up on their Air Force One contract. Huge cost overruns. Stock got clobbered again. At this point, Boeing had huge credibility problems, and the stock had come down to the 120s. And what does management do to fix things? They decided to move the headquarters from Chicago to right outside Washington, D.C. That's not a solution to anything. Finally, I just gave up. I couldn't take it anymore. The endless trip of bad news and botched quarters was like torture to me. So we sold Boeing for the travel trust in the spring of 2022, right when we should have been buying it at discounted prices. What did I do wrong? I didn't have the patience or the pain tolerance to stick with my original thesis, which was dead right all along. Remember, we bought Boeing for the Chapel Trust, knowing the company had subpar management. That wasn't even an issue for us. The whole idea was that no matter how badly these guys dropped the ball, Boeing would make a fortune for the post-COVID bull market there's only two companies. Sure enough, we sold our final shares in Boeing at $121 in mid-May of 2022, which is only a few points above where the stock only bottomed. If we'd stuck around for the next 12 months, we would have seen this this stock shoot above $200 as the bull thesis played out perfectly. The lesson here, if you believe in your own thesis, you can't let the naysayers scare you away. I knew Boeing was the second best airplane maker in the world it was flooded with demand because of aircraft. Yet I missed a spectacular rally here because I didn't trust my own work and couldn't take the pain. Here's the bottom line. The moral of the Boeing story is simple. If you have a thesis that looks like it's gonna play out, don't let its unrelated negatives scare you away. Boeing's hideous performance in the first half of 2022 was not a reason to sell. It was a reason to buy, but only if you had the fortitude to stick with it. And I didn't. But stick with Raymond. I always say my favorite part of the show is to answer your questions directly from you. Tonight I'm bringing in Jeff Marks, for all of Anna's partner, And he's going to help me answer some of your most burning questions. Look, for those of you who are part of the investing club, he will need no introduction. For those of you who aren't members, although I hope you will certainly be soon, I would say that Jeff's Insights in our back and forth to help me do a great job on Mad Money viewers and members of the club. And I think that I need the the yin and the yang here. So why don't we just get started? First up, we're starting up with a question from Pete in Michigan, who asks, Jim, regarding your rule, bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered, how does this apply to the own it, don't trade, it sucks? Okay, this is a great question, because a lot of times, when you have a bad day for NVIDIA, bad day for Apple, say, with a a titanium heating, it challenges the thesis. But what I come back and say, it's okay to have a cheat day, this is where I've been working on it, yes, uh, we've been pigs theoretically, in Apple and NVIDIA. But what we find is that those stocks are not piggish if we look in forward numbers. So uh, it looks like NVIDIA is expensive. Uh, and then it turns out that it's cheap and it justifies owning it. Does it justify keeping this much? That's a subjective question. I have often felt that it's okay to say, all right, we say own it, don't trade it, but you can trim. But I've been reluctant to do that because these are our best
2: stocks. Yeah, and what I would add to that is that when we do look to trim, it's usually at a certain point of when the stock becomes uh, too large as a percentage right. of the portfolio due to that outperformance. So we and we've usually, had that. of course, we usually we have it usually around you know thirty-three stocks in the portfolio right. at we've any given Apple, time. We had we had had Nvidia. Sure. And when uh, one of those Apple, just to pick on Apple, whenever it gets uh, too large as a percentage of the portfolio, we trim it back. It's because it had a good run, and that's usually a good time to right. do right. it. Right. And that's not, but you know, we saw it. A TV, you know, it's,
0: it's actually a nice discipline, the way we're yeah. approaching it. All right, next up, we're taking a question from Mike in Florida, who asks, Jim, I've been doing a lot of profit-taking, and I'm 50% cash. I'm making just under 5% cash. i we being forced to wait for a pullback to get back in, and at what level should I start buying? Right now, I'll tell you what, Here's the way I look at it. Let me go back. I'm not saying right now, I'm not saying. When we have these situations where interest rates have spiked, uh, when the market's very oversold, on our oscillator, which we have a special deal with, with, with uh, for our subs, then you need to pick. But the market must be down. We don't pick high. We pick low. And that's why even though you got 50% of your money in cash, I'm not saying
2: uh, go take that and throw it in the market. Right. I'm saying gingerly apply. No, that's, that's exactly it. You want to dollar cost average if you do have that large cash position, dollar cost average into the market. Do it on some type of uh, regular schedule, what, what works that's best what for I you. That's what I think. Whether it's every two the weeks month. with a paycheck, a month, monthly, something like that. And that, w- that way you'll get the best prices over time.
0: Right. And remember, uh, when you have these situations where everything's going wrong, it only takes one thing to go right. And then the shorts who have had the run of the place change their mind. So you want to understand that when you're at 5%, that means you're going to miss some opportunities. Now, 5% is great if you're already rich. 5% doesn't cut it if you're not. So how about a a barbell, some five and some stock? All right, now let's uh, take a question from Bennett, who wants to know, what is the maximum exposure one should have to any sector or stock in a well-diversified portfolio? Well, we don't really want more than, say, 10% in one stock. Well, uh, the sector's a little harder. Yeah.
2: yeah, well, look, you could always just try and follow the S&P 500, but uh, be overweight, underweight, just based off your conviction levels uh, in those stocks, within those sectors. I'll give you a good example. Uh, entering 2023, we didn't own any real estate or utility stocks in the travel trust. Why? We listened to the Fed. The Fed said they need, still needed to raise rates keep rates higher for longer. We know those those stocks tend to underperform as rates go higher. So, of course, you can always do some mixing and matching within it, but you can Precisely. just track the index as well. Precisely. Yeah. And I hope all this helped you. We tried
0: to do, of course, much more than this for the club. But these are the questions we answer every day, and we actually use stocks that we're buying from the Chapel Trust as more of the uh, the teaching moment. Uh, but this is representative of what you get. I like to say there's always a bull market summer, And I promise you I just for you right here on Bad Bunny. I'm Jim Kramer. See you next time.